the last few uh, weeks uh, thinking about who we are as a church and as a people. And last week I started a story, uh, the story of us, who we are as a church, where we've come from. And, and uh, I spent some time around about, uh, it, was, it was a long one last week, I do apologize. Uh, my son said, 49 minutes, Dad, with furrowed brow. So, um, but in that 49 minutes, I got through around about four to 5,000 years of, of history, and, uh, and we left it at uh, 1556. And the reason we're doing this is because it's important for us to understand who we are. We need to understand where we've come from. And I also said that it's important for us to understand that Jesus, right at the beginning, when God made the promise, right at the beginning, he said there would become a redeemer, a rescuer, and his name uh, was going to be uh, the Messiah, that when Jesus actually did come, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he has fulfilled that promise, even when it feels for us as a church, and this might be the first time you've been in church for a long time. Maybe this is the first time since the last christening or wedding or funeral. It's important for uh, us as Christians and for you as seekers and people who are thinking through Christianity that this church, this Willow Park Church, is part of a massive eternal landscape. We, Unfortunately, in our political, uh, very political world, the church, the evangelical church especially, is aligned with certain political theory, whereas actually when you listen to last week's sermon, you'll hear that people have literally lived and died and martyred and been maimed and persecuted for this story, this story called church, this one called Jesus Christ. And so we left it last week at 1556 with a huge uh, um, situation in Oxford where there was martyrs. And, and now we, we jump into the 1600s. Before we get there, though, here's something that we need to understand. Here's what I want you to receive from this message. I'm not going to apply it as I go. As a preacher, I tend to want to do that. I want to say, here's some truth. Here's how you apply it. This is what the Bible says. This is how it can change your life. And in telling these stories, I'm just going to let the story speak for itself. But there's a danger. The danger is this, is that we're going to listen to a few stories. We're going to go from around about 1600 to 2019, and you're going to hear some fundamental stories. And what I mean by that is these are stories, especially of men, who have uh, who really changed the course of history, significant events that bring us to where we're at today. And so you're going to hear four or five different stories as we work through the last few hundred years of where the church experienced something different, something profound. And as we come to that, we can come in a different way. We can come thinking, wow, I could never do that. That's not me. I could not be that person. Therefore, take a step back and discount ourselves. Or actually, what I truly believe is the, is the truth, is that we can press in and we can say, okay, these were ordinary men and women. There was nothing remarkable about them other than that they heard the call of God and they followed through obediently. You see, we all come with different gifts and strengths and different uh, judgments as to what the church should be, what life should be. 
maybe you're somebody who really likes the Word of God. And, and I know Stephanie is that person. She likes digging into the Word of God. That's great. And maybe you're someone who likes worshipping and prayer. And you just want to listen to Bethel and Jesus Culture all day. And you get lost. And that's what you think church should be like. Maybe you're somebody who's all about serving and justice. And let's go out and help the needy, help the poor. That's what church should be like. Maybe you're somebody who just likes community and relationship. And you want to pull people together because you believe that's what church should be like. And so what we tend to do is we rate the church. Depending on how we think the church, Willow Park South perhaps, yeah, more worship needed or this should be better or that should be better. And so we give it a solid three out of five. But if we think, oh no, the church is really great in this aspect, yes, five out of five. And so we rate it. Whereas what I'm seeing as I look at these stories is as we rate the church, that God has a completely different viewpoint. Paul said this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. See, these, these people we're going to hear from are unashamed. They also truly believe in the power of God, that this is God's church, not mine, not yours. So regardless of the perspective that I come out at church saying this is how church should be, God's actually got different ideas. So here's what you're going to hear in these stories. That God loves to use people who are very, very different from one another. There is not a certain mold. And in this world, in our culture, we have this idea that church should be a certain way because we saw it on Instagram. Whereas you're going to hear people of people that are completely different. And here's what blows my mind, even theologically completely different. So those of you who are more Calvinistic in nature, you're going to go, hmm, Charles Finney, not sure about him. Those of you who are more Armenian in nature, and you don't know what those two terms mean, it really doesn't matter. Um, if you're more Armenian, then you're going to go, oh, George Whitfield, not sure about him. Whereas it just seems to me that God enjoys using everybody and anybody in any way that he wants. So let's step into this, believing that somehow we're part of this great story. That these people showed, first of all, great dedication I'm hoping this comes through. I'm clicking. Still clicking. Oh, no, too far. Let's go back. All right. Never mind. These bits, it's all up there. If you turn around. <laughs> Blimey, I didn't come to church for a workout. What's this all about? <laughs> See, these people show great dedication. Dedication to what they believed. They showed great desire. They showed great drive. They showed great devotion. They showed they were impervious, it seemed, to distractions. They, weren't, they just were extremely focused on their faith. And you see, the church, I think, gets a bad rap because sometimes the church can be filled with a family of God that is so distracted that the world, the culture who maybe are watching the church more carefully than we think because I believe strongly that people in our community and people in our cultures are desperate for the Savior that we believe in. And so they watch us, but we're so distracted that I wonder whether as we hear these stories that what actually made these people stand out was their complete, consistent dedication, desire, drive, devotion, lack of distraction, and more than anything, their dependency on the sovereignty of God. In other words, that God does what God wants to do when he wants to do it. Are you ready? Buckle up. It's going to be quick. I've got 400 years. All right. 1600s. 
We left it at 1556 and into the 1600s, this really interesting period of time where really you could look at the history of church and say that nothing really remarkable happened. There was no great revival. There wasn't a reformation. It's almost like the breathing came, that God said, okay, let's just rest for about 150 years, that, that things were happening, but they were more underground. They were gentle. And so at this time, the colonies were starting to come to North America from Europe, and, and many of them with the purpose of sharing Christianity. So the Pilgrims land and the Puritans established colonies in North America. The King James Version of the Bible was, was printed and, and really established and standardized English, the language at that time. Some people really believe that the only way you can still get to heaven is by reading the King James Version. Let's have coffee because that's not true. Um, the scientific studies were starting to increase. So people, because they were fascinated with the creation of God, people like Kepler, Newton, Bacon, Robert Boyle were making discoveries in science all through the 1600s that great literature like Paradise Lost was being written by Milton. And I have a struggle with Milton because I was made to study Paradise Lost when I was doing my A-levels in Britain, but him and I will work it out one day, I'm sure. Then The Pilgrim's Progress was written, this beautiful time. Then we get to the 1700s, and it's almost like God goes, now we begin. Now we begin. That I have established my word, I've established the scriptures, I've put the Bible into the hands of the common folk. Now we begin. And in my words, it's almost like God did say, buckle up, because now we really start doing some work. So the time is 1709 and the place is Epworth in England and the father of the religious is born, John Wesley. And I knew that slide worked. That's wonderful. John Wesley was the youngest of 19 children. Let's take a breath and think about that. Born to pastors. These pastors must have been having quite the effect in their town because their parishioners set fire to their house one night. It was the parishioners that did that. So he must have been a really great pastor, a really good Anglican priest. And the 19 children were pulled out of this house. And John Wesley was the one that was pulled out last. And his mother held him in her arms. And, he, and she said this, John, my John, truly you are a brand plucked from the burning. John grew up and went to Oxford and went to school. At that time, it was very, uh, it was very um, desirous for people to either be a doctor. Nothing's changed there. A lawyer. Nothing's changed there. Or a minister. Hmm. We've seen a shift there. Those three professions, those three things were looked upon as being very, very of high acceptance, high acclaim. And so John went to Oxford with the desire of becoming a minister. But the problem with John was he had a cerebral faith, not a heart faith. In other words, he'd not come into contact with Jesus on the cross, the Jesus, the Jesus that we just heard from Stephanie, life transforming, not just some of this, I'm attaching Jesus to my life, but Jesus is everything. He didn't have that. But he still went on missions. And on the way back from missions to America, he was, there was this huge storm that rose up in the middle of the ship, and he was terrified. But he observed this group, this group that he's called, that called the Moravians from Germany, led by a man called Peter Bowler, who, if you remember from last year, the starting point for the Moravians was John Huss. If you want to hear about John Huss, then listen to last week's message. And John Wesley had a question. How could somebody have so much faith, singing hymns and praising God? How could they live like that while we seem to be going down, while we seem to be uh, sinking? And, and, they, and they said to him, John, 
Peter Bowler said this. It's a very classic statement. John, preach faith until you have it. And when you have it, you will most assuredly preach it. I'm going to pause because it looks like my slides are out of order. So I don't have any of the words, it seems. So that's okay. We'll adjust. John, preach faith until you have it. And when you have it, you will most assuredly preach it. In 1738, John went to a Bible study where they were reading out of Martin Luther. If you want to hear about Martin Luther, listen to last week. Martin Luther's introduction to Romans. And he said this, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And at that moment, he came into a faith-filled, thank you, a faith-filled, actual life-transforming connection with Jesus Christ that radically changed his life. And he immediately started to preach the word of God in the same faith that he'd been told. If you keep preaching faith, then you will find that you will get it. Now he had faith and he preached fire. He preached well. But he preached in churches. So his good friend George Whitfield, who you'll hear about in just a second, challenged him to go out and start street preaching to the miners. Now please understand, let's not get caught up in our cultural moment. Let's not think that because these people lived 300 years ago, that they were any less antagonistic towards faith. They were very antagonistic. In fact, street preachers were known to be beaten up and killed by the miners as they left the mines in the morning. But George Whitfield basically said this, George, uh, John, you need to have some guts, you need to go and preach to the miners. So in 1739, he begins to preach one early morning. Oh no, Let, let's, uh, you, David, I'll do it, okay? He preaches to the miners. And he was shocked by the amount of response that he received. And at that moment, when he took that step from his friend George Whitfield, challenging him, and he goes out and actually is obediently following through. Remember, that I said at the beginning, this dedication to the call, that he found that thousands of people responded, and the fire of revival was lit across England. Hundreds of thousands of people in every city and village came to know Jesus. Not cerebrally, but changing their lives completely. See, the power of the gospel is mine, says God, Romans 1, verse 16. Remember he said that? I am not ashamed, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. John Wesley's ministry sped over 50 years. He preached 40,000 times to crowds of tens of thousands, sometimes three to five times a day. He refused to preach in a church if it had backs on the chairs, on the pews. Think about that. As we give you Starbucks as you come into church. (laughs) There's no slouching. There was no sleeping when John Wesley was the preacher. He refused to preach to somebody in a church if it had pew backs. He wrote 6,500 different hymns. And he rode on horseback all around England more miles than any other person in history. 400,000 kilometers written on horseback. Eight hours a day, an amazing explosion of the Spirit of God. He trained 653 lay preachers, hundreds of visitors to the sick. He trained hundreds of small group leaders and started clinics for the poor. He started what we would call now a community group, a home Bible study. He borrowed the idea from the Moravians. And he was famous for starting something called the Holy Club. This was in Oxford. But these community groups, these Bible studies are not what you and I would think about when we think about community groups. The high accountability in these groups, I'm not sure how it would settle in our community because the leader was trained by John Wesley to ask this question. How is it with your soul, sir? How is it with your soul, madam? 
well, it's doing very well in my soul, thank you very much. And then somebody else would say, really? Because I heard you getting angry with your neighbor this week. Then the leader would look them back and go, really? How is it with your soul now, sir? These groups exploded in popularity. There was thousands of them around England at that time and around Britain. Then we move into George Whitfield, 1714. George Whitfield was a remarkable man. He actually skipped school because he had such a uh, passion for acting and for plays. And so he would skip school to go and watch these plays. He loved acting. Eventually, he found himself at Oxford. He was determined to go to Oxford. He paid for himself to move through Oxford by waiting on the richer students at Oxford. But he went to the Holy Club. So I don't know if he's in there. You can try and identify him by his wonderful haircut. He's in there somewhere. Maybe this is him. And he fell in love with the Word of God. He fell in love with the Word of God that would actually change the direction of his life forever. And he started to preach in London. But when we say preach, his preaching was remarkable and unusual. He would attract thousands of people because he would enact whole studies, uh, whole stories out of the scriptures. And he would bellow and he would dance and he would scream and he would shout and he drew the crowd in. He used little scraps of paper to preach from and the whole crowd were fascinated with his abilities. One actor said, I would give 100 guineas if I could say, oh, like Mr. Whitfield. 100 guineas, that's 100 gold coins. Three years wages for the average person at that time. If I could just say, oh, like Mr. Whitfield, actor David Garrett. And yet, at 22 years old, George Whitfield was certainly not a man who was full of himself or his gifting. He was very humble. He said in his journal, O Heavenly Father, for thy dear son's sake, keep me from climbing. 1739, he heads over to Philadelphia and he starts preaching to the crowds outside. Hundreds of thousands of people were known to gather just to try and catch a glimpse of George Whitfield. The revival, the power, the transformation of God and his gospel that he is in charge of was sweeping through America at that time. In large part through the the obedience and dedication and desire of George Whitfield. It was written that crowds would elbow, shoved, and trampled over themselves to hear of the divine things from the feigned Whitfield. Now again, let me remind you, please don't get caught up with the, oh, that's how things used to be. It's exactly the same as now. Just imagine in your mind's eye that our culture suddenly stopping what they were doing and coming to hear a preacher, a person, just like you and me, sharing the word of God. The anointing upon George Whitfield was remarkable. He went to Harvard and Yale, and it says this in its history, the college is entirely changed. The students are full of God. And he famously said this, I would rather wear out than rust out. I would rather wear out than rust out. And he carried on, we are immortal until our work is done. He died at 57 years old. He was constantly mocked. He was constantly threatened. He was sent constant death threats. The people who were around him were beaten and they were maimed. And at one point he was actually stoned until he nearly died. I'm sorry, he died at 55. Whitfield preached from 40 to 60 hours a week. He woke before 4 a.m. and was preaching by 5 a.m. on most days. Sometimes until 2 a.m. in the morning. 49 minutes, Luke. 
<laughs> we live in a different world. We live in a different world where we would happily sit and listen to a comedian for an hour and 20 minutes. At this time, people would listen to preachers like George Whitfield for hours upon time. He preached passionately. 34 years of ministry, 18,000 sermons. He crossed the Atlantic 13 times. Benjamin Franklin, the president at the time, a skeptic, not a Christian, thought the numbers were hugely exaggerated of what was happening around George Whitfield. He didn't believe that there was a possible that tens of thousands of people could even hear the man from the back. He thought it was ridiculous, and so he wrote this in his journal. I purchased myself in a tree, a quarter of a mile, it's about 400 meters from the speaker, stand knowing that it, I would scarcely hear the voice of Whitfield when he began to preach. But as he began to preach, the force of his voice almost knocked me out of the tree. I left my purse at home, this is in his journal, because I understood that Whitfield, spelt wrong, offering appeals were so moving for his orphanages in England that people would give everything they had. When Whitfield gave the appeal, it was so moving, I ran home, got my purse and came back and put it in the offering. That is the power of God unto salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it is the power of God unto salvation. These men, these people believed it, they lived it. And whole cities were changing. The revival spread northward in America and a near-sighted, scripted preacher, a man called Jonathan Edwards. Now, talking about different characters, you could not find somebody more different than Jonathan Edwards to George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a Calvinist. He did not believe in giving appeals. He didn't try and convince anybody to become a Christian. He literally told the story and allowed God to do the work. Jonathan Edwards picked this up. Jonathan was a deep philosopher. and In fact, uh, in America, he is known as the greatest theologian that America has ever known. Humility and brilliance combined. He would preach like this, with his head down, with his manuscript. He was so nearsighted with a candle. And he would look up every now and again to see what God was doing. And he was shocked oftentimes by people's response. People wailing. People laid on the floor. People crying out for forgiveness. Again, do not think, oh, well, that's just 300 years ago. This is people like you and me, so convicted by the word of God, so blown away by what Jesus did on the cross for them, that they would wail. And Jonathan Edwards didn't even have words to be able to describe. He, he struggled with what was happening in front of him. But God had supernaturally come into time and space and he was changing lives, and he still does. The greatest theologian, humility and brilliance combined. At 17 years old, he said this, I wish to lie low before God, 17, as in the dust, that I might be nothing, and that God might be all, that I might become as a little child. New York, as the revival is now spreading, Charles Finney comes to the forefront. What a character. You could not find somebody more different than Jonathan Edwards than Charles Finney. Look at him. <laughs> when I first saw Charles Finney, I was thinking of, of, the, of the way that we are now in our culture that looks and, and forgive me Charles when I meet you, but when, when looks and, and image and style are so important, how different it was just today. Charles Finney 
was a lawyer, a very successful lawyer. In his mid-30s, he started feeling this change in his life, like, like, uh, like Stephanie was, was talking about. This kind of shift that he knew that something different was happening. And so he started to go to church. He started to look into this person called Jesus who would die on the cross for him. He was intrigued by it, and he was, he was caught up by it. So he made a decision one day. He would leave his lawyer's office, and he would head into the woods. And he says this in his journal. I will give my heart to God or I will never come down from there. He prayed for several hours and he returned to his office. And it was in his office that he says this, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit that was like waves of electricity that went through me and through me and through me. And he gave up his law practice and he started to preach. He started to tell people about Jesus. See, I find that very convicting. Because the dedication and the desire and the focus that they would elevate their faith and belief in Jesus Christ to the highest place that everything else would follow, Charles Finney started to preach. And revival burned even stronger under the leadership of Charles Finney. Hundreds of thousands of people came to know Jesus. In one particular crusade, 100,000 people, history tells us, became Christians. One of my favorite stories about Charles Finney was that he was deeply troubled that people continually thought that his sermons were, quote, pleasing. He didn't like that people liked his sermons. So he worked hard to make them less pleasing. He worked hard to make them tougher and more productive. And he, very different from George Whitfield, appealed to people to give their hearts to Jesus Christ. See, the Calvinists amongst us will go, you don't give your heart to Jesus Christ. That's not how it works. And yet, it seems that God doesn't really care too much about vocabulary. He cares about truth. He cares about the fundamentals. He cares about the non-negotiables. But sometimes in our stumbling, he will still use us. So Charles Finney used to give appeals at the end. He would actually bring certain practices in that still today, for example, the altar call, the raising of the hands, all that was attributed to Charles Finney, completely unique. So he worked hard to make his sermons less pleasing. At one particular sermon, he said this, you have made up your minds to become Christians. You who have made up your minds to become Christians and will give your pledge to make your peace with God immediately should rise up. Nobody did. So he said this, you have taken your stand, you have rejected Christ and his gospel, you may go home. They went home angry, really angry. The next evening, Finney preached on wickedness. It is quoted as saying he was like a fire, a hammer and a sword. He made his sermon less pleasing the following night. But at the end of this particular sermon, he gave no chance to respond. The next night... The entire town turned out angry. One man with a gun. Charles Finney preached. He gave his chance to publicly declare their faith. And the church erupted. Dozens upon dozens gave their pledge. Others fell down, groaned, and bellowed. That is history. Not just made up. That's actual in newspapers. That's the effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the effect that people have when they come into a living knowledge of Jesus Christ. That might not be something that we relate to in our church, but the power is the same. The transformation is the same. The dedication that these men and these women showed was remarkable. One of my favorite stories, 
surrounds a man, very little known, Jeremiah Lanfia, 1809 to 1898. At 46 years old, Jeremiah, and please listen to this, because out of all these, this is the one that convicted me the most. At 46 years old, and I'm, I'm almost 46, Jeremy heard from the Lord and decided under great conviction that he was to walk the streets of downtown New York and Manhattan and share and give people tracts as he went. He started talking to people about Jesus with absolutely no success. Then God put it on his heart to pray. And so what he did is you can actually find this if you Google. You can see the leaflets that he would give out. He would go into the streets and he would invite other people to come and pray with him. He didn't tell them about Jesus. Just come pray with me. And you can see the tracks that he would give out. There is no design element to them at all. It's just full of words. And he would give these out. And he said, next Wednesday we're going to pray. Wednesday came and at noon... The allotted time, no one turned up. Jeremy Lamphia got on his knees and he started to pray. After 30 minutes, he opened his eyes and he saw five other people. Five. The next week, 20. The next week, 40. Then they decided to meet every day from 12 to 1 o'clock to pray for their city. See, there's, if, for those who think there's nothing I can do, we can pray. 12 to 1 o'clock, they started to pray for their city. Within six months, there was 5,000 prayer groups meeting in New York. It would literally shut down the city. This is an actual photograph of them praying. Just think about that. Just imagine downtown Kelowna, landmark buildings, wherever you might want to choose, that people would flood for an hour and pray. Hundreds of thousands of people became Christians. In fact, the New York Times at the time reported on the great supernatural events that were happening. Thousands came to know Jesus. And it spread all over America in 1859. 15,000 cities in America were having downtown prayer meetings every day. And it started by a man going, I need to do something. And he went out into the streets and he just invited people to pray. London, 1834. My hero, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, who was famous for saying, Zido nulli, I yield to none. When Spurgeon passed away, London came to a standstill. 160,000 people went to his funeral. They lined the streets for three kilometers. Even more remarkable, pubs closed. Flags at half-mast. His sermons reached millions. Dozens and dozens of outreach societies were formed in London that are still in existence. He was the pastor of the first megachurch, arguably the greatest preacher that has ever lived outside of Jesus. Not my words. Born to a family of 17. His mum and dad were ministers. They did not have their house burnt down by the parishioners, which is encouraging. But he was fascinated by Puritan writers. It's said that he had written, he'd read Pilgrim's Progress a hundred times by the time he was 16 years old. At 15, he sought refuge from a snowstorm and heard a sermon in a chapel that would change his life forever. At 16, he started to pastor and preach in rural Cambridgeshire. He would use scraps of paper that he would continue to do his whole preaching life, just small pieces of paper, many of which you can still see today, some of which were handled together even later on, last thing at night on a Saturday. 
he drew crowds to hear the boy preacher. At 18, he was invited to speak at New Park Chapel in London. The congregation of 232 was so impressed with him that they asked him to come to London at 17, 18 years old to start pastoring just for six months. He hit City of London at the age of 19 like a tornado and never stopped. He never left London. The congregation grew to 5,600 and met at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. You had to get a ticket to get into church on a Sunday. They would plead for people not to come back next week so other people could come in and hear this young man preach the gospel. He never had any formal uh, university education. He, however, though, the, his library consisted of 12,000 volumes, all of which he devoured. He was a hugely intelligent and smart man and leader. Within a year after the ticketing started, people were sitting on windowsills And at 22 years old, they moved to the Royal Surrey Gardens Music Hall where 12,000 people would gather inside and 12,000 people outside, knowing that they could not get in, knowing that they wouldn't be able to hear him. This is before these things and, and PA systems, and yet it's said that when Spurgeon preached, the whole of London would come to a standstill. It is the same God. The same God is at work with you and me. There was 15 steps up to the pulpit. And with every step, he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. 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 He was the first to be cool and use a table to preach from. He didn't have a pulpit. He just had a little writing desk. You can see artists' impressions of him standing there, thundering the gospel. I thought I was going to die right there, one person said, in the face of all these people. At the end, he made a mighty effort to recover his voice. Let my name perish, but let Christ's name last forever. Jesus, 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 crown him Lord of all. And then he fell back, almost fainting in the chair behind him. His sermon would be transcribed and sold on the street corners in London, spread by train all over Britain. The next morning, grocery stores ready for family dinner time. People would line up to get the piece of paper to go home, to sit at their dinner table with their family and read Spurgeon's sermons to their family. It was cabled across the Atlantic. The New York Times would print his sermons. A thousand, uh, sorry, a million of them spread around Europe. A hundred thousand to Australia. Sixty-three volumes, uh, sorry, sixty-three volumes of his sermon. Twenty-five million words. Three thousand eight hundred sermons in print. They sold fifty million of them before he died. Three hundred million of them up to twenty years ago. Twenty thousand copies a week being translated into twenty languages, and he died at fifty-seven. But that wasn't enough for Spurgeon. He started a Bible college. And he started a charity. Many of these organizations are still in play today. One of which is still very much part Spurgeon's Children Charity. 37,000 children each year are served. 78,000 parents every year are served. He had the same spirit of God. Now given he had a calling that was unique. But that same power, the gospel, is still at work in our lives, friends. In Kelowna. What about now? In 33 AD, there was 120 Christians. 
Antioch at the time, the third largest city in 38 AD. Approximately 500,000 people lived there. Six Christians were sent there as missionaries. Within 70 years, 100,000 believers in Antioch. Six people equaling 100,000 Christians 70 years later. By 1000 AD, there are 50 million Christians. One in every 220 people. By 2010, we are told that 33% of the population is Christian. 2.18 billion people in this world would proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, Christianity is not on the way down, friends. Just because we read that or we see that on the internet, the absolute opposite is true. Because what did we learn last week? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. It's exactly the same promise, exactly the same Holy Spirit, exactly the same God that lives in you as it did in these people then. The difference is, I think, is to do with distraction. It's to do with desire and dedication. One in three people are believers. Now you might go, oh, hang on a second, that's not the case in Kelowna. This is the whole world. It has tripled, the number of Christians has tripled over the last hundred years. Even with the so-called increases in intelligence and thought, our technology, that the more we learn, the more people are pressed towards the Bible. And we learned that in the FAQ series, that more scientists are becoming Christians today than ever before. One particular country seems to be exploding with revival at the moment, and that is China. And we have some Chinese friends here with us this morning. It's very difficult to assess perfectly how many Christians. It could be far more than this, it is said. But 40 years ago, there was approximately 1 million Christians in China. Now, there's 70, at least 70 million Christians. The stronger you press Christianity down, the more it flourishes and grows. Because it's not about a cerebral. It's about what the heart does and what people are willing to do for it. In Africa, 20,000 people become Christians every day. In 1900s, it was 3%. Now, around about the year 2000, it's said that 40% of Africa's population is Christian. In Korea, the year 1900, not one Christian church in Korea. Now, in one city, in one city, Seoul, in Korea alone, there are 4,000 churches. 30% of Korea would declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, the church is not done. The church is growing. The church is strong because the transformation is real. People who are deeply entrenched in their beliefs in Islam becoming Christians through dreams at night. It's amazing what God is doing. I will build my church. So as I humbly come to the end of this story, this is us. And we stand on the shoulders of men and women who have literally given their lives and shed blood so that we have the privilege of meeting here on a Sunday morning. So we have the thought of, shall we bother with church this morning? that they lived and breathed and died for the gospel. The belief that Jesus Christ died, he rose again, that he still transforms lives, that there is nothing I can do to fix what I know is true and real inside of me, that no amount of intelligence or degrees or money or success or looks or psychology or counseling or self-help sections in chapters does not fix who I know well, what is going on inside of me? But Jesus Christ 
is still transforming lives today. And by his death on the cross takes my sin, my shame, those things that I can do nothing about and it dies with him. And then he rises again. This is what as Christians we believe. He rises again and then in rising he gives new life. And then the conviction comes for me. Do I have that dedication? Do I have that desire? Do I have that drive? Am I reluctant to get involved in the distractions? Am I dependent on the sovereign and powerful will of God? Am I willing to stick at something even when it seems like there is no success? Because God called me to that. You see, that's what I think makes these people stand apart. And I could have chosen so many others. These were fundamental times in history. The men and the women, the missionaries. I read about Gladys Aylward. You know that story? Oh. <laughs> What a lady. She got her Bible. And she said, God, here's my Bible. She got her few coins. Here's my money. Use me. And then she spends her whole life, she spends the next part of her life traveling to China and spends the rest of her time as a missionary in China. This little girl. What's the name of the book? Smith Sparrow. Little bird, something like that. There's so many people. And I just wonder in our moment, in our time, whether we could be one of those people. How wonderful would it be for us to tell stories of the way that God moved in Kelowna? Amen? You know where it starts? Prayer. And I'm not being cliche in that. I genuinely mean Monday night prayer. Let's gather together at 33 and pray that the Spirit of God would move now as He has in times past. Father, thank You for this story thank you Lord that we stand on the shoulders of men and women and children who have given their lives not just for a belief but Lord they've given their lives because of the way that you have transformed them and Lord I pray that as we hear these stories that courage would rise up in us Lord, I pray for boldness as Christians. Lord, boldness to go to our neighbors and our friends and our family and and speak truth and point to you and maybe invite them to something. And God, that we would see a glimpse of what you are capable of in our culture because, Lord, we desperately need you. Lord, I thank you that the church is alive and it is well. And I thank you, God, that it's getting stronger. So, Lord, I pray that in our little corner, our tiny corner of your story, that, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see. That, Lord, that we'd be able to lift up from our lift our eyes up from what's immediate around us and see that we're part of something beautiful, something magnificent, something glorious called the church. And Jesus, I pray that now, as we come into some time of worship just to finish our gathering together, Lord, for those who are just journeying and thinking through all this, that, Lord, that there would be some whisper from you to come to pray to kneel 
figuratively or literally before the cross say God I need you thank you Lord Lord I pray with all sincerity in the name of Jesus let revival burn in our city in Jesus name